Good afternoon. Welcome to the panel on RNZ National. Wallace Chapman here. We have Stephen Jacoby and Verity Johnson with me today. Now, I thought we'd kick off with this. It's pretty important stuff. Child vaccination rates in areas like uh, South Auckland remain in a state of crisis as healthcare providers are stuck in a post-COVID-19 catch-up phase. We can't let our child vaccination program decline, Dr Nikki Turner said. These were comments from Dr Turner, who is the medical director of the University of Auckland's Immunisation Advisory Centre. With us now is Dr Emma Best, a specialist paediatrician and has been with the Immunisation Advisory Centre for some years. Dr. Bess, kia ora. Uh, kia ora. This, this really got my interest today because it's clearly quite a stark warning here. And does that square with what uh, you are seeing as well? Uh, yes. I mean, we, we, are, we are seeing that, that we've had a decline in immunisation rates. Uh, so, you know, a baby at the age of eight months should be well and truly vaccinated. 90% of those babies should be covered. But we're seeing it's dropped below you know, to the 80%. And certainly we're in certain regions... Uh, around 70% of infants or Māori infants in certain regions are, are covered at eight months uh, with vaccines that they should have got. Is this decline a global trend, Emma, or New Zealand-specific? Um, it's, it really is a global trend. I mean, I think we all know what we've been through. Um, mm. But you know, when you have settings with um, conflict but also um, resources that are diverted uh, and to contain or restrict covid it's really a crisis that the world hasn't faced before for a lot many years, and, and our public or our preventative health measures uh, have been sort of diverted. You know, our, our medical, our vaccinating workforce uh, really diverted even you know globally to, to manage COVID, and, and that's um, stopped you know crucial, important preventative health, which to, uh, to me, is, you know, as a paediatrician, it's every child getting immunised. Yeah, absolutely. And childhood immunisation, I mean, it covers quite a range of diseases, doesn't it? Yeah, well, we, we you can get uh, we get early protection into our babies uh, against whooping cough, um, you know, lifelong protection against tetanus, uh, polio, uh, certain types of pneumonia and meningitis, and then once they you know one one and over, they get their measles mumps protection, uh, and they get boosters, and then when, once they get to school, they can have the you know the, the HPV vaccine. So there's there's actually each life stage, you know, yeah. critical prevention of infectious diseases happening from our program. Let's get into the panel, eh? Verity, what of this for you? Um, kia ora, Emma. I was curious about um, how the stats showed that there had been a massive drop between March 2020 and then it dropped again in 2021 and it's still dropping in 2022. And for me, that suggested that COVID and the misinformation around that might be responsible for that. So I'm just curious, do you have any evidence that vaccination is dropping because of well, misinformation and vaccine scepticism? Well, I think, yes, there's been a little bit since the pandemic. I mean, I think we've heard a lot about infectious diseases and immunisations and and maybe some little effects from the mandatory policies, uh, maybe some reduced trust. But I think the main issue is actually our very tired and stretched health services. Um, Communities are also struggling with lots of other issues. Uh, We need to make sure we remember that priority is getting our kids vaccinated against those common and life-threatening um, infectious diseases and you know, being vaccinated. So I think most, or certainly the families that I deal with and, and us, we actually want the same outcome. That's good health for our, for our babies. So I don't, we don't see vaccine hesitancy. I think it's about us getting it to people um, rather than uh, much the same sort of hesitancy massively increasing. Okay. Stephen? Um, uh, thanks, Emma. That's uh, very interesting. And I, I, I mean, what we saw during the COVID time, wasn't it, that programmes that meet communities where they are and speak to them in languages they can understand 
assists vaccination, uh, despite the vaccination hesitancy and scepticism. So how does that translate when we get to child vaccination programs? Yeah, I think you're, it's exactly right. I mean, it's actually, it's about the trust. It's actually a trust, it's a relationship. And that's what we've kind of, when you have a very stretched health service, you lose that. You can't get to see that the doctor or the person, the, the healthcare worker or the, the frontline fantastic nurse vaccinator that you've seen each time. Right. Doctor to see them, we're not accessing, not enrolling our babies in primary care as perfectly as we should. So that trusted relationship um, is getting fragmented, uh, you know, with the stretching of our resources. Now, the World Health Organization recently raised concerns about an international outbreak of polio cases. And I was thinking, polio? In 2023, I thought it had almost been eradicated uh, thanks thanks to vaccine efficacy. Uh, But um, that also is a disease that, again, has reared its head. Yeah, I mean, I think it was late last year, a young man in New York got paralytic polio. Um, and they've detected the virus in water in London and, and, and New York. Um, I mean, it tells us that it's it's the tip of the iceberg, the virus is circulating. It's just, a, yeah, as you say, an example of what we forget about diseases. Yeah. And then when immunisation rates drop, they come back. It's really frightening to imagine polio again. But we're, I think we've got things, really critical issues like measles. We've seen that in 2019. Uh, we saw you know, thousands of cases in Auckland. And uh, I'm really concerned we're going to be, that's knocking at our door again. Okay, gosh, all right. Yeah, uh, more than 2,000 cases recorded. Uh, the 2019 measles outbreak, that was quite uh, quite something, wasn't it? So just finally, uh, Dr. Best, uh, for those you know, parents listening in this afternoon, um, what's, uh, what's some advice? What can we take away from this? Yeah, I think we just really want to work to get back on track for all our tamari here. And vaccines actually save lives, especially uh, young babies and children. So, um, you know, getting there back to your, back to your providers, making sure your immunisations are up to date and your kids are on schedule. Vaccines save Lives. Dr. Emma Best, thank you very much for being with us. It's 13 past four on the panel. We have Verity Johnson, a, 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 com, a, a columnist and owner of Burlesque Club. We have a um, New Zealand business leader, Stephen Jacoby. Meanwhile, uh, running, feedback running hot, uh, whether you like vinegar, <laughs> tomato or mayonnaise. And I tell you what, a lot of people are loving the vinegar. Um, I've loved many foods in many places around the world, but nothing compares to British fish and chips with lashings of vinegar, mushy peas, and a pickled onion. Oh, Actually, some of our British uh, li- li- uh, listeners of British um, extraction might like to comment on the importance of sarsen's vinegar as opposed to, uh, you know, what we have here in New Zealand, which is what, the YC malt? Sarsen's vinegar? You sarsen's really vinegar. are. Man, you're getting specific. You really it's are. very specific. You've got to prepare to come on this program. Fourteen <laughs> past four, the pan. Now, this is really interesting. Beach Haven has been in the news, and not just because you can't swim. A storm is brewing about replacing four houses with 81 apartments on a 7,000 It is a huge development. Ruin the village atmosphere, they say, and there's nothing for single people to do in Beach Haven. It would attract bedroom commuters who wouldn't connect with the village, they say. We're not an apartment community, someone said at a recent meeting with us. Is resident Crispin Robinson, one of the good people of Beach Haven. Kia ora, Crispin. Hey, Wallace, Stephen and Verity. Kia ora. Now, what's the issue here, Crispin? You don't want single people coming to Beach Haven. 
We, we love everyone coming to Beachhaven. A lot of people don't know where Beachhaven is. They think it's South Auckland, uh, a lot of people. and uh, Stephen didn't know. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, but it's a very inclusive community. You know, it's, it's a great community. Uh, and I think the meeting that we had that was actually in the summer holidays where 180 people turned up showed some of that passion and also how, how much people care as well. Um, I, I think the thing uh, we're all finding really frustrating at the moment, there was press at the meeting, but they've literally uh, honed in on one point. Really, which was? Bedroom communities. Uh, uh, so, and I think it's, uh, it's one of those things that um, there's been a couple of articles on this and that's what they've honed in on. We're, we're not objecting to bedroom computers. That was one comment that one person made in that meeting. What we're objecting against is a development going in on land that's only been zoned for single dwellings. Well, it's not going in. They put in a planning application for it. Uh, yeah, I've heard uh, about this, I mean, and it does it does feel like it just on that. I mean, it, does, it's, it sounds like a very big uh, application on a particular land, eighty one apartments on seven thousand square meters. But look, Crispin, uh, those listening, so, some might say this is nimbyism at its worst, pulling up the drawbridge to not just Auckland's single people, but to people who want to share in the delights that Beachhaven has. Yeah, and we love people sharing in the delights of Beachhaven. But again, I think, rewind back a few years, and an Auckland Council did a very well thought out plan, uh, the unitary plan, uh, which uh, was catering, I think, for around 900,000 new homes and apartments across Auckland. Um, And it's well thought out, well uh, planned uh, for areas that can handle those kind of developments and and also um uh we there's a lot of stuff that needs upgrading here we're, we're the poor a lot of people think north shore and they yeah think, yeah the developers will do that crispin that's that's yeah that they 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 will do that they were made to do that stay there actually we've got another voice on this too but let's go around the panel on this and then come back to crispin Stephen, you first uh, yeah, well, this is obviously um, a pretty hot topic in Beachhaven, and um, you know, um, communities are going to react to these things uh, in different ways. Uh, I, I must admit, I'm not sure where all the single people are going to have to go if they can't go to Beachhaven and other places. But I do think, and just to be a bit more serious about this, I do think there is a question about um, the way we organise our cities. Look. I don't live in the North Shore, I live in Mount Eden, and there is a very large development going in at the end of uh, Mount Eden Road. And that's great, it's going to create thousands of homes. But all those people are going to come up Mount Eden Road, how are they going to get to the city? So I guess my question uh, for Crispin is, what are the um, infrastructural challenges that you've got? Do you have roads? Can, Do you have all those things? Can we can we just fold Verities and can we get mm. a comment from you to Verity and go up to Crispin? Yeah, I mean... Yeah. Uh, Verity first. Um, I mean, I was actually just going to say, I understand and sympathise with you, Kristen, because I understand that I grew up on the shore. It is congested. There is a lot of people currently there, and the buses are terrible. Mm. Um, and I say this as someone who came from Albany. Um, but, like, in all honesty, you know, we all know as Aucklanders that we need more housing, and the shore needs to have more development, more accessible 
housing for the city and for single people who are working in the city. So if we can't build apartments, where where are we supposed to go? And I say we because I am a bedroom commuter um, and I do live in an apartment block and I actually would like to be part of the community. But I'm not sure if we can't develop in these regional suburbs which are like 20 minutes from the city, where are, right. where are we supposed Crystal. to go? Yeah, I think we're, we're not anti-development, Verity, and I think anyone who bought a property on that land would be a fool to think that there wasn't going to be something goes up there eventually. But in the unitary plan, it's zoned for single housing, and the developers not only uh, putting in development that's over height, but uh, two stages over the intensity that's uh, going from single housing all the way to mixed urban. And it's it has, I think the other thing is, is it's a parcel of the land that is on all sides, has people living around it. It's not on a road, it's set back from the road. And it has a significant effect on the lives surrounding that property. And, uh, and, I know, and that happens with a lot of developments, but the impact on this one, it, there's, there's people who will literally get no, uh, okay. no sun in the morning. There's, there's a young couple who just bought a house. Um, they're, they're, with the dip in the market, they're in negative equity already. And when this goes up, it's going to affect them. I mean, Crispin? There's a lot of stories here. Yeah. Hey, good on you, Crispin. Thanks for being with us uh, on that. This is uh, uh, Crispin Robertson uh, from Beachhaven who has concerns about this uh, 81 apartment um, project going ahead on that. Uh, not so much against the uh, bedroom commuters, as they say, or the single people, but uh, nonetheless, we have Oscar Sims to get another voice on the spokesperson for Coalition for More Homes. Kia ora, Oscar. Kia ora. Now, so you're hearing this, it's simply a community wanting to retain what they have now, not against intensification, but against this mammoth development going in, 81 apartments? Well, I think there's two points to make here, Was I mean, I think the first is that it's a three-story apartment building. So the, the way that this has been framed in a lot of the, the media is that this is some giant skyscraper, that they're going to build Kowloon uh, in Beach Haven. But that's not the reality. The reality is this is three stories. This is you know relatively sympathetic to, to the surrounding area. I believe um, there's already a medium-density development that's adjacent to this one um, that was existing in this neighbourhood. So I don't think this is something that's going to kind of radically reshape Beach Haven. We're talking about a single development. Well, the funny thing is, Oscar, if you go, if you, if you know Beach Haven, it's actually not that much of a village necessarily because there's actually quite a lot of, lot of intensification already there. Quite a lot. It's just this one, zone for single story, as you say, three stories going up. I mean, what are the rules here? Well, I mean, the developer has clearly used the existing planning laws and has applied for an application in the way that everybody is entitled to in order to put up this development. They've done everything in accordance with the law. I mean, I found it a little bit galling that that, um, there were suggestions at this meeting that was held that they would be using public money um, to uh, pay for lawyers in order to object to this development. Like, there is a process that has been followed here um, and it has been approved by council planners. I think because this development actually isn't that radical and actually isn't, um, you know, destroying the character of the neighbourhood in the way that has, has been presented. Okay. All right. Verity? Um, Oscar, I'm curious.
curious. I'm actually largely on your side with, like, I, I agree with apartment buildings being developed and three floors seems reasonable. But I also know from personal experience when they wanted to build a 16-story apartment building next to me that um, there was actually no consultation process with the public around it because it fitted in, fitted in under the unitary plan. So I'm curious, like, um, Crispin was talking about her residents having their light blocked. What is the process if you're a resident and you've suddenly found out that your light's being blocked? What is the process you can go through to address this with the developer or do you just have no rights at this point? Well, it's dependent on the area in which you live and, and the zoning that has been applied near you, right? So if you live in an area that's already urban, that's already um, using that, that urban zoning, um, then you know you can by right build taller buildings. But um, we've had a planning system historically that has been very sympathetic to the rights of existing residents, that has been um, all about you know preserving people's existing interests. And to some extent, this is something that we want to maybe not eliminate, but, but certainly shift the balance a little bit in favour of new residents and, and those people that are coming in um, instead of the entrenched interest. OK, Stephen. Well, I just think, as I said um, earlier, um, and I think as Verity said, that people have got to live somewhere. I, I guess it's part and parcel of consultation processes that everybody has to have uh, their say. But maybe, Oscar, I don't know if you've got a view on uh, the effectiveness of the consultation processes that we have in place at the no. moment. Well, I, I, as I just said, I think historically there's, there's been an issue where um, it's been very, very difficult to build those kind of sympathetic medium density developments in the latter of our inner suburbs. And if you look at that by an international standard, by other comparable cities, I think that, you know, we're seen as a bit of an outlier because we do have this, you know, single story, single house zone in all of our suburbs. And, you know, if you're, if you're a few kilometres away from the city centre in most cities, you have those apartments, you have those townhouses, you have those other developments which can, can fit sympathetically into a neighbourhood um, and you know, provide much more housing per, per square metre of land. Hey, nice to have you on, Oscar. Thank you for your time. Appreciate it. That's Oscar Sims there. He is a spokesperson for Coalition for More Homes. Prior to that, we had resident Crispin Robertson from Beach Haven, uh, and he opposes this uh, development. Um, and uh, Oscar is... F- f- for more development, I guess, uh, or uh, accepting of medium to high uh, density. Another uh, feedback, piece of feedback here, developments, it's the same problem everywhere. Why should Beach Haven or Rimuera be any different to most of Auckland? Our local orchard is now a construction site of over 230 townhouses. Uh, and someone also says, Verity, uh, just a minor correction here, Beach Haven has a great bus service. It also has a ferry service. The buses run every 15 minutes and more frequently at mm, peak time. I grew up on the shore. Not convinced? <laughs> nah. <laughs> nah. But like, look, so we had one bus that came every 15 minutes, but you had to walk 15 minutes down a highway to get it. And like, I, I didn't grow up in Beach Haven, I grew up in Albany. But anyone who tells me that the shore has good public transport, bro, you're dreaming. All righty. Okay. Now, uh, to this, we talked about um, fish and chips and the condiment of choice. And a lot of people got in touch with that. And with us now is Mike. You're Mike. How's it going? Very well. How are you? What are you having on your fish and chips these days? Uh, well, definitely vinegar, I've got to say. And it's got to be malt vinegar. What is happening? Oh, funny ones. Seriously. <laughs> what is happening in this country? It's a movement. It's a movement. <laughs> it is a movement, it isn't, is. isn't it, Mike? And actually, I, I, why we got you on is for the very reason you specified malt vinegar. Malt vinegar on fish and chips is 
next level. It's heaven, isn't it? It is. It's got the taste. And, and you've got to remember, look, it goes right back to Roman times. Vinegar is actually really good medicine for you. It's good for you. Um, so we're actually um, being healthy when we're doing this sort of a thing. What is wrong with ketchup? Tomato sauce is uh, like the blood of the nation. Well, Stephen's, Stephen's <laughs> nodding vigorously. You're, you're a, you're oh, a... Look, I'm, I'm with Mike all the way here. Uh, I like um, vinegar on my, my fish and chips. I might occasionally, if I'm just having chips by themselves... Uh, maybe try other things, but uh, you know, actually, and um, you know, I come from British kind of heritage, so you can understand it. I must admit, my wife's families were Kiwis from way back, and I mean, they like um, tomato sauce with fish. I find that. Uh, I guess, you, I mean, you go a bit further than most people might because what you do is uh, after your pottle of fish and chips, then you, you, you then drink what's left over. Uh, you do. You've you got to get your pile of chips, and then you pour your vinegar over that, and then lots of salt to go over it as well, too. And then you eat your chips, and what's left over, plug it back. So, and, sorry, um, when you say drink, do you mean like you like drink it from the, the bottle? bottle? Yeah, the bottle. Yeah, yeah the bottle. The bottle. Yeah. The bottle of chips. Yep. Yeah. No. Bottle. Mike's yeah. a fan. Mike's a fan. Hey, good to have you on, Mike. Happy Friday to you. And yourselves as well, too. Have a good weekend. Have a great weekend. Cheers. So there Thank we you. go. Um, I wanted just to get a brief response on this. For many of us, books are some of the hardest items to part ways with. It's passed down that books are some sort of sacred object. But let me, let me put it to you. Reading is precious. Maybe more value to pass on your books to others. So um, my question to you, I guess, is are you a big bookshelf person or a small bookshelf person. Now this person at the Guardian said that actually keeping a large bookshelf uh, uh, Rhiannon Lucy Coslett uh, said that keeping a large books, bookshelf is smug and middle class. <laughs> is that you? Why are you Steve? looking at me? <laughs> He's looking at me again. Look, I, I have to say that uh, we are in fact uh, big bookshelf people. We love books. We, yeah. uh, we've got a wonderful little bookshop in Mount Eden. That's Time a really bookshop. good bookshop. Absolutely. Shout out to them. Marvellous people. But actually, this it, it's very opposite because we've had a bit of a rethink about this over the holidays and we are starting to cull. Oh, and we're go. saying to ourselves, we've got to join a library. We can't keep buying uh, endless numbers of books. Every time I've given a book away, I've regretted it because I wanted to look at it afterwards. But I do think there's a balance to be had. This person says that uh, having a lot of books as a stand-in for your personality or believing that simply owning a lot of books makes one know things is wrong. What the correct thing to do is actually part with your books and pass that knowledge on to someone else and not be a big bookshelf sort of person. Verity? Uh, speaking of smug and middle class, I think it's even more smug and middle class to boast about how you're holier than thou with your bookshop, bookshop and right. you give it away. Man, <laughs> so much politics in books. No, I have a huge bookshelf. Um, I do both. So I have a large bookshelf of favourites that I will read 20, 30, 50 times. And then I have also an iPad with my Libby app from Auckland Libraries, which I highly recommend, where you can get all these free books, like e-books and stuff, for ones that you are going to read once and then won't want again. Right. So I well, do both. I have, uh, I have seen the light, and I've, I've gone from being big bookshelf to a small bookshelf person. I had hundreds on a, a floor to ceiling. I thought, no, this is not the way. So I have 25 curated books even wow. my special ones, I get rid of them. I said, what's the point? So the churn is there, fresh thinking, new ideas, new books. 
25 books, not a book more. You're on the panel, RNZ National, what about you? A big bookshelf versus a small bookshelf?